Welcome everyone to a very, very special episode of Seaweed Brain. We are two childhood friends and lifelong fans of Percy Jackson who have spent the last three and a half years reading through the Riordan verse to prepare to discuss the Disney Plus adaptation together with you. And today we have a very incredible special guest to help us achieve that dream. Daphne Olive, staff writer of Percy Jackson and the Olympians is in the house. Stick around. Hello, Daphne. Welcome to Seaweed Brain. (laughs) Hi, it's so nice to be here. I'm really thrilled. I am Erica, joined as always by my co-host, Carter. Hi, and we are in the same place today, sharing a mic. You know how that goes. If it sounds weird, that's why. We are so excited to talk to Daphne, who is not only um, famous now, but also in a previous life was an analysis podcaster. So Daphne, would you like to tell us a bit about your incredible job and the jobs you have had before and what led you to be speaking with us today? (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it's a funny round. (laughs) I started out as a jewelry designer. I mean, I guess officially I am still a jewelry designer, although I don't spend that much time doing that anymore. I learned that when I first stalked your website and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Why why is this website full of jewelry? Um, Yes. So I was always a person who listened to, if not podcasts, because that's a relatively newer thing, but I used to listen to books, NPR, pretty much anything to occupy my mind while I make jewelry, because making jewelry can be repetitive and boring, uh, although also very fun. And I realized at some point, like kind of when podcasts started really being a thing, like that I could find podcasts where people analyzed stories, and then, which was my favorite hobby to the point where I would bore most of my friends incredibly after. Oh, we're any, familiar. Any, <laughs> any book or television show or movie. Um, so I started, I started listening to podcasts like that. And then I fell in love with a TV show called Black Sales. I looked for a podcast talking about black sales and there was none. So I proceeded at that point to go all over Twitter to all the podcasters I liked and try to get them to watch it and talk about it because almost <laughs> no one was watching it, sadly. Oh my gosh, you ran a campaign I before did. you I was became one of those a podcast. People. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, I was one of those people. Exactly. <laughs> And, and I kind of like gotten to be friends with some podcasters and stuff. And then one of them, Elizabeth Stevens, the best person, she said, great, I would love to do a podcast about this show that you just made me watch because it's amazing, but I will only do it with you. And I had never recorded my voice, even used to be nervous about recording my voice, even like on an answering machine. So we did it. We started a podcast. We thought no one was going to listen. Um, the cast started listening, the writer started listening, and the showrunner eventually started listening. And that is John Steinberg, the showrunner also of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. And they all eventually came on our podcast and John and I got to be friends. And at some point along the way, he decided that the way I talk about stories means that maybe I should be helping write them. Oh my God. (laughs) My heart is melting. (laughs) I was terrified, but um, they brought me on to work on their other show called The Old Man. So I started there. And then when they started working on Percy Jackson, they brought me along for that too. And, And it's great because I had never read the books and I read all five in the series that is now six, but was then five. I fell in love with the story. And 
it's just been honestly a delight from the beginning until now and you know just continues to be so do you still make jewelry well officially <laughs> i do i mean you said you looked at the website the website still yes. exists <laughs> my jewelry business was one where i mostly would sell to stores so every once in a while stores still even though i don't really promote it uh people i have worked with will still place orders and i'll fill them and i have a store I have a store in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So my jewelry is also in my own store. A woman of many talents. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask a little bit about like the writer's room because to go mm -hmm. from, as you said, being like somebody who's very thoughtful and who has podcast about stories but isn't necessarily like in that physical space, like what was it like to be pulled into the actual creative process and to like be present with all of those people? I, I was very lucky because it felt gradual because – the writer's room for season one of The Old Man was literally the three people who made Black Sails and me. So like, right. I guess on some level, extremely intimidating, but also at the same time, like they kind of all knew my story. Like they understood why I was with them because they invited me. And so it was a really wonderful way to be introduced to the process because I was with three people who knew yeah. the process so well and completely understood how clueless I was about the process. And so I got <laughs> to learn the process along with them. Also, yeah. you know, I'll just probably continue to say this throughout, like just the most generous souls in the world. And so by the time the Percy Jackson Writers Room started, I like had a better sense of how this works. And mm -hmm. I was very lucky that the Percy Jackson Writers Room has been just full of amazing people, really just wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah. I could wax on for a long time about like artistic mentorship mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. wonderful it is to see that play out in our own fandom now that John is such a producer's producer and such like an artist's yeah. artist who mm -hmm. like sees potential in people and wants to bring them in. Like that is one of the greatest joys of life, I feel like, is watching that kind of relationship play out and turn into art and into stories. Okay, mm. that's enough from me. That's enough from me. I love TV. So Phoebe from mm -hmm. Monster Donut, our wonderful friend Phoebe, I think at one point she mentioned to me that your role in the Percy Jackson writer's room is almost like story consultant, that like you really are looking at the bigger picture. How would you describe your role? Yeah. I think you're credited as staff writer, whereas some other people are credited as writer. Right. So, I mean, part of that is is just the hierarchical nature of writers and the WGA and how that works. So like you start out as a staff writer. Mm -hmm. I'm now working on season two of The Old Man and I'm no longer a staff writer. I got bumped up to story editor, which is the next. Oh, um, but, but again, these roles, there's not actually really a difference between staff writer and story editor. Like I'm just, I'm in the writer's room yeah. and everyone fills the role that they fill. And yeah, Phoebe and I have talked about it a lot because of what she does. And it became this kind of joke that like without knowing what I am really or what my process is, like you could kind of call me a dramaturg. It's this funny thing. Like, so yeah, it is hard to like say, this is what I do. But, but a lot of what I do yeah. is thinking about the big picture thinking about themes. Like I just, I see myself as a person who helps individuals and the group in whatever, I mean, honestly, in whatever way possible. So like sometimes it is bringing in stuff from the outside, like, you know, fun, extra mythological stuff. Sometimes it is being, you know, the person who's honestly constantly thinking, wait, we can speak in spoiler speak, right? Yes. 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 Um, this is a spoiler uh, episode. Right. So sometimes, you know, it's like being the person who's like constantly talking about 
the great prophecy and yes. the end game. Like, and like, how can we, you know? Yes. So there's just so many ways. Like, it's just like, you know, sometimes I'm helping with scene work. Sometimes I'm helping, but, but like a lot of it is just like, however I can help the process. Like in the writer's mm-hmm. room, we're all doing that. Like that is mm-hmm. literally what everyone's doing in the writer's room. Right. But it's just like, I, I feel like those are the things I'm good at. And what you want in a good writer's room are people who are good at different things. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, I, I, I see shapes. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how to explain it exactly. <laughs> but just like, I love to see story shapes. Yes. And, and that's like a really fun thing for me. I love like imagining emotional shapes like Mm -hmm. i love you know this is one of the great things about this adaptation is that to take a story that is so deeply in in first person narrative Mm -hmm. and then have have to find the who all these people are aside from the way percy feels about them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. has been so much fun it's such an amazing opportunity because the story is so beautiful so it's so fun to find new angles yeah. mm-hmm. that fit in the existing story. Oh, my and, God. And a lot of it, again, just because we get to inhabit other people's yeah. heads mm-hmm. in addition to Percy's. Yeah. I don't know. When you said that, I was picturing like scaffolding. Like you're putting <laughs> up buildings all around this other, this like Percy's narrative is the central idea, but we're like creating a city now with everybody else. Exactly. And that is, I think, what is so exciting as fans of the books to get to watch like, oh, wow, like Luke is yes. a real person and there are things about him that we can observe that percy maybe cannot observe (laughs) yeah that maybe percy's perspective isn't picking up on these things because he's a 12 year old boy which was something rick mentioned about medusa right which (laughs) luke is just you know begging he was begging to be a fully fleshed out character because he is so (laughs) interesting and right i mean he's just like i think in the books the relationship is presented in this beautiful complexity but again just just from Percy's side so like yeah Mm -hmm. sitting in you know Luke's head theoretically is just so much fun because right I can speak as well right I just I know know. right (laughs) um he's he's just a he's a fascinating character he's he is actually I mean if if you listen to my podcast he is my favorite kind of character because yes my, my favorite kind of character is someone who who means well, but maybe makes a few choices that take them in the wrong yeah. direction. <laughs> Something I've been thinking about a lot the past couple of weeks is how excited I am. You know, God's be willing five seasons of this show to see <laughs> Luke be developed so much more and to see him have this like more anti-hero role against Percy because we'll just be able to know so much more about him. Like we'll be able to see him in mm-hmm. scenes beyond Percy having dreams about him in the later books. He, he gets up to yeah. so much trouble. I have so <laughs> many questions about the Princess Andromeda years um, and all of that. Um, uh, it's funny. I, I've now forgotten officially what his fatal flaw is, but... Mm, Luke? I don't think they canonically... They don't say... I, I would like assume I it's humans, but... but right, exactly. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Is like the, the whole twist of him being "quote unquote" the hero is, you know, ultimately the thing he wanted most in the world. It breaks mm-hmm. my heart. I love it. <laughs> don't, Charlie. You got this, kid. Like, like you got this, my dude. Um, speaking of shapes, question about pacing because in our years of thinking about 
these books and how they fit into an eight episode series. I don't know how much of that was sort of like sorted out before you stepped into the writer's room for it, but like what would go in what episode and how to get in and out of camp so quickly. Um, and like how much of the episodes would have an episode shape as opposed to the thing that I think was really popular a few years ago and is still popular now of basically having, you know, like episodes that compose a six hour movie. Um, you know, like, I feel like these episodes really are episodes and there's a beginning, middle and end to each product. Right. And like, that also feels like not inevitable. And we're, we're curious about yeah. what goes into that decision-making process. Well, it was all outlined at the beginning. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's funny, like as a former podcaster, I'm very aware of like the whole controversy over the idea of a six hour movie. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. But I'm going to middle that like a little bit is because I feel like I hate saying prestige TV, but like in television that has fewer episodes, right? Television that's not mm -hmm. 20, 25 episodes in a season. I think that the idea of a movie is right and wrong. Like each episode has its acts, right? But you want each one to be its own unit that makes sense yes. as a unit. But you do yeah, want to look yeah. at a season when it is six, eight, 10, even 12 episodes. You want to look at the mm -hmm. season as having acts as well. Yes. So, it, so you see what I'm saying? It's like, it needs to feel like, like ideally, not needs to, ideally, it would feel like a six to eight hour movie. And each of those portions of the movie, the episodes feel like unique objects of their own. Yes. Like, so if, when it's done in the best way, it's actually doing both of those things at the same time. Yes. Uh, which I'm not gonna say, anything about what we did but that was I feel like the <laughs> intent was yeah I mean there was definitely part of the process is like what is the episode about in addition to what <laughs> purpose does it serve in the larger story of of the season of you know mm -hmm. it all works out well of the five season story like but you want all of those building blocks to align so that yes. each episode has a what is it about and then those what is it about for each of those episodes fits together into a story that has a what is it about for the season. Yeah. Yes. Wow. First of all, I think that this show, and I'll say this, is very <laughs> successful in doing that. I like we're recording this on the day that um, episode four is dropping, yes. and to me, we've okay, we've only seen up to episode four. That's what we got screeners for. When we saw the end of episode four we were like mid-season mid finale <laughs> mid-season finale like this was the first act out of two like it feels like everything is building up to the end of episode four when percy is able to step in to his identity and like really embrace the rest of the quest um and that just that pacing was just so miraculous but using that idea of what is each episode about i feel like we have a question about in episode three which John said in the Variety article, he credits much of that episode to you. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it with you. The new piece of lore about monsters being able to smell different things, like your weaknesses at different moments. Mm -hmm. Grover delivers this line talking mm -hmm. about Electo. I don't know if you want to explain this, Carter. This was kind of your observation. As we were talking about it, we were like, this is the way that you set up like television. This is like the way that you like have an in-universe reason to have the thing of like where the English teacher is always talking about a book that is like directly relevant to whatever like personal heartbreak every student is going through in a mm. TV show, you know? But like now it seems like it makes sense. Like w when their episode is about like family and the relationships 
that cross generations, there's like a reason why a particular monster now is like going to come after them. In episode three, we were talking about betrayal and trust and and what was going to happen between these characters. And so Medusa is present to like highlight betrayal and the mistrust between, you know, their parents that whether or not it's going to play out between the two of them. We were like, this is such an interesting piece of lore, but it also feels like such a great storytelling device. And I don't know if we hallucinated that or <laughs> if... <laughs> And you can also say pass and no comment at any (laughs) time. (laughs) It's a funny thing to walk that line between wanting to talk about it and definitely not wanting to tell people how to understand what our intent was. Yes. So I know that Medusa is not literally the first monster that they encounter, but on many levels, um, she is like the first kind of featured monster in that way quote-unquote monster, I will say, <laughs> to be true to our show. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember that just felt like a huge stroke of good luck. For me personally, because I have been obsessed with Medusa and Athena as a story forever. <laughs> so that was just super fun for me personally. But in addition to that, the thing that's so interesting about Medusa on so many levels is that she weirdly, or not weirdly, or intentionally, correct we'll see (laughs) but like she's so perfect as their introduction not just to the world of uh, not just to the mythological world but to each other right because even though you know on many levels percy is a theseus not a perseus but you know that's just my thing (laughs) Mm, mm, yes but um but but weirdly he's a theseus and a perseus right like he is theseus in that you know he didn't know who he was and that his yeah. father's mm. decided and like it's such a theseus story and and theseus was also a person who was like a bringer together of people yeah and he was doing this <laughs> i was trying not to go down my theseus road but it was please do yeah yes one of my favorite like one of the most important books to me and one of other than my name which is really why i started reading greek mythology the other thing that made me love Greek mythology is a book called The King Must Die, which is the Theseus story. Okay. Highly Could not recommend. Link, we'll more link it highly. in our show notes. So y'all. this is Mary, Mary Renault, and it's old. Like, I think it's from the 50s. I feel like I should know this better than I do. All of her books are great, but that's a different podcast. Okay, 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 cool. <laughs> but um, The King Must Die is really a beautiful book about the responsibility of leaders, about community, mm. about the gods, mm-hmm. about the relationship between humans and the gods, about fate. Mm-hmm. But um, it's so interesting, back, back to Medusa, it's so <laughs> interesting in how many ways she intersects with our characters, right? So like there's the literal thing of like, yeah. you have a son of Poseidon and a daughter of Athena, right? So that's mm-hmm. obvious. But the place that she holds, I think, you know, for me, and I think what made it fun in the show is that she's the perfect example of what it means to be not a god. So I'm going to include lots of different categories Ah. of characters. What it means to be not a god living in the vicinity of gods. Oh, ow. And I think that, you know, if I was going to boil down this story to like one thematic concept that really speaks to me, it is that. It is how difficult it is to be, whether, you know, if we're going to say mortal for humans plus demigods or human or or a monster who are mm-hmm. 
part of the family, which I can say now, yeah. like since episode four, it will have already dropped. To be not a god and in their vicinity is dangerous. It can be exciting. Mm -hmm. It can be a lot of things, but ultimately it is not easy. And I yeah. think that if you look at all of the characters in this whole story of, again, demigods and not demigods, what they are all struggling with, the thing they all have in common is how do I exist in a world in the vicinity of gods? And each person answers that in their own way. And that feels like the different ways. Sometimes they are aligned and sometimes they are in yeah. contrast. And mm -hmm. sometimes they're yes. in complete opposition. The choices mm -hmm. that people make in that reality is the basis of this story for me. And, oh, for um, sure. you know, I <laughs> love young adult fiction. So like, ultimately then you're going to always bring this back to like, what does this mean for children in yes. transition to adulthood, which is yes. a complete parallel to this idea where adults, you know, in the, if we're going, if we're leaving the mythological world behind and we're just talking about humans, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. that is relevant. Like what is it to yes. become a preteen and a teen, it is to phase from a position of less power in relation to adults to mm -hmm. becoming one. What does that mean? What do you want to, how mm -hmm. do you want to exist in relationship to that hierarchy? Mm -hmm. So I feel like aside from the feminist story, which is, I think, you know, I think mm -hmm. it's pretty clear what, what we were doing with that one. So I don't have to talk about yes. it, but mm -hmm. she brings this out for honestly, all three of them, not just Annabeth yes. and Percy, but for all three of these kids, they have to figure out, like she just kind of puts them in a place where they have to really um, not declare themselves exactly, although obviously they do a little bit of that, but like she mm -hmm. makes them think, she shows them where they are not aligned and where they are aligned. Mm -hmm. And again, yeah. yes. it's a great introduction for us to then play off of that in ways I'm not going to talk about because I've only seen half of the season. <laughs> my God, it's I know what's going on in my brain right now is something you've experienced before as a podcaster where you're just like, the light bulbs are like <laughs> pinging and like everything. Like I thought so much about Sally during what you just said and mm -hmm. what a great way to bring her into this episode and to just expand her more in the season is to think about her as somebody who exists in this world of gods but is not a god mm -hmm. and how she navigates that and experiences that as a very real and full person yeah. is something we don't necessarily get to think about in the books that is so beautifully being brought to the forefront here, especially mm -hmm. with the way that Medusa brings up Sally and is like aligns herself in her head with Sally mm -hmm. in this scenario to Percy. And we're so blessed to with, it's such a great thing to be able to adapt a story that is full. Like, I mean, I know there's yeah. other books after these five, but like, you know, there's things like, I remember when I was reading them for the first time and it was like, I read the first book a few times before I moved on to the other books when we found out that Sally was a seer, like that's one of the great moments. Like I was just like, it just, it was for me, it was just like clicked. It was just like oh, so much of the beginning of the story, like with this retroactively applied to it, like has so much more meaning to it, right? Because it means that she oh, yeah. really was part of this world. She's not just a human, right? Like mm -hmm. yes. seers are so interesting because they are part of the world without, their choice right yeah yes. and with such a lack of power yeah right but they didn't choose to be part of it but they are because they're seers oh. and so like 
in a way, a parent who's a seer is in a lot of ways better equipped, but also mm-hmm. tragically better equipped to help their children. <sighs> so like, this is Sally, this is May. Like, it's just like these these mm-hmm. these characters who like, it's not just like, what's going on with my kid? It's like, I know what's going on with my kid and there's nothing I can do about it. Ow, 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 I'm, <laughs> ow. And no, I, I, it's like such an important parallel to bring up, especially because like at the end of this book, like one of the lines that stuck with me as like a kid reading this was Percy looking at his mom and like having that whole smelly gay moment and being like, this is a moment for both of us to realize that like there are some things that we need to just watch other people do, even people we love. And for that to be like for Sally basically to have this like little microcosm of like what is going to end up being Percy's entire five book journey just like in the first book of what do I do with this power what do I do with this power what does it mean for me to or or like specifically like Sally has like a moment where like when she lets Percy go back to camp after all of this quest goes down if my life is going to mean anything I have to live it myself it's that and it's both of them being like we need to like yield with respect to each other's lives and like that that moment like foreshadowing (laughs) but then also like building into Percy having a moment like years later where he is going to be like like not everything is about me doing something or exerting control. Yeah. I guess ultimately what we're saying is that everything is traced back to to Sally and um, yeah. the richness of the of the character. Yeah, I'm so glad you yeah. said yielding because that was a word we. It's like if you did a what are those those things called word wordle, cloud. word clouds of how many times we've said a certain word on our podcast. I think yielding yeah. would be the second biggest underneath Persebeth. Um <laughs> because we felt that that concept of like Percy gaining power and you know, learning how to not wield it over others is like how he ends up going about walking into the world as an adult, as a demigod, as somebody who maintains power in this world of the gods. The person who doesn't need to be, quote unquote, the hero. Exactly. Exactly. That's such a fun superpower, right? It's just like, I just Mm -hmm. feel like it's so special, like that his greatest power is not actually the ones he was born with. It's the ones that are essential mm-hmm. to who he is, not what he is. And it's what yeah. he was taught by Sally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That this is the lesson that makes him a hero. And I have to say, like, on my like mammalian three watch of episode one, <laughs> I finally caught Glenn as Chiron saying in the Met, like, these statues, they show us what we're capable of as Perseus mm-hmm. staring up at Perseus holding the head of Medusa. And that wrecked me to my core because I was like, what clean writing to lay the foundation for the story that Percy is going to see this violence and think about the violence he is capable of and then enact some of that violence in this episode. In episode three, the moment when he... I I wonder if this was in the script, the moment where he literally like assumes the pose of the statue and then immediately like recoils and drops it was um... while Annabeth is watching from behind the door gate. We could write an essay about Annabeth watching from behind the gate. <laughs> this is like a borderline death of the author violating question, but I think we can have a have a not how would you say like um intent absolutist discussion about this at our little like watch party that we had for the episode one of our friends like reactions to the end of it was like that was really good but i really thought that medusa was going to be part of the team they were oh my like, god that she was going to join the quest <laughs> they were like i'm surprised that they still killed her at the end of the episode and like to, in my head i like had to pause and think about that and be like i i think that this was the right choice and that it wouldn't have made sense like even if you set aside the canon of the books existing Mm. but i'm i'm sort of wondering like if you like have thoughts on the 
alternative story value of an ending where Medusa isn't killed or if you just feel like it's such an inevitability for the way that the story works that it like isn't I, I don't know something isn't something that you thought about no I'm going to answer this in a hopefully still being a dead voice of the dead author (laughs) (laughs) I feel like as part of my personal process I can't speak for the other writers but as part of my personal process if I haven't imagined scenarios like imagine not not just like structurally but like imagined emotionally scenarios outside of the way the story ends up going just because Mm -hmm. again like I said in the beginning just like sticking inserting myself in the head of a character and imagining all the ways this could play out emotionally for them in a way that's true so like there is what happens and then there what is what feels true so your mm-hmm. question mm-hmm. feels to me like a compliment because your friend imagined something that felt true and mm-hmm. isn't mm-hmm. the way it went which ultimately mm-hmm. is a, like a beautiful thing also in a story where like, did we want for a minute for Medusa to just join them? Yeah. 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 Right? <laughs> uh huh. That means we did our job well, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. So I'm taking this also as a compliment. Thank you. Um, yes! It's just like that you wanted something so much and you don't get it, but you don't get it in a way that also feels satisfying. Yeah. Like that to me is like, that's what I'm always searching as a viewer. Yeah. And so I guess that's what I'm always hoping for as a storyteller. Oh, yeah. One of our other friends, like the second Medusa got her head cut off, he was like, wait, what? Like, she's not coming back? Like, that was it? Like, Jessica Barker Kennedy isn't coming back for the rest of the season? He was so sad about it. But ultimately, it is so engaging because like we like you said about this being as a young adult or as a middle grade novel, like uh, the story of having to make choices about who you're going to be coming into this world. Like Mm -hmm. ultimately, as much as we sympathize with and empathize with Medusa, her objectives are at odds with ours. And so we have to cut her head off. And that is making difficult decisions and and moving about the the world. Yeah. Dealing about it. And yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, we're going to have a lot of characters again, I, I, uh, my sense of her, which again, it's, you know, this is, I'm going to, please don't treat this as canon, just like my sense of her. (laughs) She, there was a part of her that is lonely, very lonely. Mm -hmm. Like like, she was, that her curse was that she cannot be seen. And, And so I think that there's a part of her that would like nothing more than to just feed people and talk to them and have company mm-hmm. even if they can't look her in the eye mm-hmm. but she's also full of anger and we understand yeah. her anger again if we did our job mm-hmm. properly you understand that and so mm-hmm. she makes choices that go against something you know as we all do right it's like sometimes we make choices that go against what we want most in the world and we kind of you know, not to be totally cliche, but our own worst enemies. And I feel like that's a big part of her story. I think we have a question about episode four. We were sort of just talking before this recording about how there's so much lore that gets dropped in The Lightning Thief that would be like basically impossible to just explain out without it being so exposition-y. And one of the things that hasn't come up yet in one through four is the gods as like the flame of Western civilization and why they're in the United States. 
this is particularly a theme that we really dug into in our um, initial season on the podcast because we had kind of forgotten about what a metaphor the gods are. And then mm -hmm. in episode four, Grover has a little tiny, tiny moment where they're in the St. Louis Arch mm -hmm. and Annabeth is talking about how it's a temple to her mom. And then Grover's like, well, it's a temp, this is paraphrasing, it's a temple to a lot of other things too. And there's literally like the blurred out sign of manifest destiny above his head. And we were like, whoa, we just realized in that moment that that conversation hadn't been had yet. Yeah, um, and that that was us queuing back into this idea that like the gods are standing for something and the something is going to be like contextually specific in America and up to debate by the characters yeah. who are going to have different perspectives on it. I think we're going to have to put a pin in this one. I guess I can say, since you all did invite me already to come at the end of the season, let's go back to this question at the end of the season. Oh, I'm so excited. That is an amazing, perfect answer. <laughs> that is like the most perfect answer we could have hoped for. For backstory for our listeners, we had communicated about Daphne coming on at the end of the season. And then literally after episode three, I was like, there's just too much to talk about with Medusa alone. So this is like the Medusa appetizer episode to <laughs> the full season conversation. I mean, the Medusa Kidna appetizer. Come on. Exactly. Talk about Kidna. Suzanne Carrier. Yes. Another perfect example of somebody who exists as not a god in the world of the gods and is going to make choices based on her personal experience that are misaligned with our objectives. But extremely aligned with her own. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Shout out to Suzanne Cryer's niece, who we met at the at the Met, if she's listening to this. Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> we gave her a sticker. She was so sweet. <laughs> that perspective, that, that is a frame that I'm going to continue to think about. Like, is everyone being, like, figures who are, like, just outside, like, proximate to godhood, adjacent to godhood? Her, like, perspective is different from Medusa because she's, like, ancient. And, like, she's always been someone who has been opposing the gods, but, like, had thoughts about it. Family, Luke, you promised. Right, exactly. <laughs> she's, the, she's, you know, she's like the, the branch of the family that isn't invited to Thanksgiving. But, like, they have their own Thanksgiving, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, she's just yes. like, yeah, you're, you're my cousins, but, like, don't really like you. Um, mm -hmm. so, but I like my family. Like, my immediate family rocks, and, you know, and here's, <laughs> here's my new baby, and or whatever, my newly regenerated baby. <laughs> But I love that about Greek mythology. Like, there's, I mean, there's so many messed up things in Greek mythology. <laughs> but they, but they really are just one big family. Like, they are mm -hmm. the most yeah. messed up family. Like, that is, like, Rick drew from that, but he didn't create that. It is true. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We asked, uh, got to ask Rick about, like, his role in, like, the greater tradition of storytelling, which I always think about when we have these conversations about, like, the Riordanverse only exists because Rick pulled on very specific and very true, hilarious things about stories that have been around for eons. Mm -hmm. And we're just yep. adapting a story that itself has been adapted so many times. Yeah. And being a part of that tradition is so special. Which brings me to... Daphne being a writer <laughs> and being a part of that tradition yourself. You are somebody who is now working in a creative role where previously you were more in an analysis position when it comes to the industry and storytelling. And I would think we both think of ourselves as more critics than creative people sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm recently working on a creative project myself. And something I keep finding is turning off that critical brain is really hard and like trusting your gut sometimes to make those creative decisions. I just wonder if you have any experiences with making that transition into the creative role or into like the generative 
role when it comes to the content as opposed to the receiving end of things. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I feel like my biggest challenge was imposter syndrome. I keep making faces when you call me a writer. Like I still, I think I'm (laughs) four and a half years into this now. And I'm like, it took me easily two of those years before I actually would say I'm a writer. And that said, the thing that always kept me going, the thing that made me decide I'm allowed to do this and speak up in the room and all of these things is that the person who invited me in is literally my favorite writer. So I just keep telling myself that if John thinks I can do this, then chances are I should be here. Absolutely. As far as the critical brain and the creative brain, I don't know. I don't know if I've actually tried to turn anything off. I mean, I feel like the best way to be is just to like turn everything on Mm -hmm. and just let every part of you be part of this. Uh, Mm -hmm. That said, there was a lot of stuff I had to learn, right? Like, so like, Mm. uh, there were ways that I talked about stories in my podcasts, but there was a lot of stuff, like I knew nothing about. So like, we didn't, we never touched like process. We just, we didn't. Very similar, I feel like to what you all do is like, we, we treated it as literary analysis. We didn't talk about like, what we think the people's choices were trying to guess like, you know, what you know, director was doing, you know, we just didn't, we just didn't bother with that. We just like, we was like, there is text. The show as we have it is text. Exactly. In this mm-hmm. case, you have dual texts of the books and the show to discuss, yeah. but I've had to learn a lot of that stuff. So it's like mm-hmm. learning, uh, learning about editing was huge. Like, and I still have so much to learn, but like the more mm-hmm. I learn about editing, the more it helps me understand writing. And that's been fascinating. And like, cause I remember at some point just before, when I was still a podcaster, just in our friendship, I remember John saying that the script is, you know, even though there's many, many drafts of the script, he said that it, the script is the first draft mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that there's so many layers and so much collaboration and so much, just so many elements that, that end up coming together. And it's just like, you know, that's a big reason why I've, I've tried to spend a lot of time on set is just understanding it's so beautiful yeah making a television show is just mm-hmm. hundreds of people who are just so talented at something that they're doing that like maybe it's something you didn't mm-hmm. even know is a job and mm-hmm. like they're all the best at that thing and like all of these things together are what makes it happen and like getting to yeah. sit in on post-production, I'm just very lucky that I get to do that sometimes and just like all of that. So yeah, I think it's best not to turn anything off and Mm -hmm. to be open. Like that's the other thing that I think, honestly, I think if I had started, I'm not young, which they can't tell from the podcast. This is (laughs) essentially my third career, which I started not as a young person. I think if I had done this younger, I wouldn't have been as excited about listening because I feel like just mm. me personally not that young people aren't good at listening just me personally the person <laughs> and the person I am now I'm I, I'm just fascinated by the world and so yeah that's is such a treat is just and it's such an important part of all of this is is to be open to learn 
because there are so many people to learn from on so many levels of this. And it's just amazing. It's honestly amazing. There you go. Screenwriters listening to this, future (laughs) filmmakers. It's all about turning (laughs) your brains on and listening. Um, I have a silly question to close on, which is, will you tell us about how your daughter's paintings made it into episode three in great (laughs) detail? (laughs) I mean, it's funny. This was a process. We are very close. Like I'm very close with John and Dan and, you know, they had met her already. They knew her. They knew she was an artist and it actually was like a while ago that John had suggested maybe, you know, we were in one of the shows, not necessarily this show, but like that something, one of her paintings would end up in, in a show. And like, and she was like a little like, like honored by that, but a little like, Ooh, I don't know. Like she was nervous about making something specifically for the show. And then out of nowhere, it just turned out when, when they were in post, a lot of cities have banners like that. And they needed it to cover it with something that wasn't Vancouver. <laughs> Spoiler, it's not Vancouver. <laughs> I mean, it's not New York where they get out of the cab. <laughs> and so John just texted me and was like, do you have anything ready? Like anything that, like, that she would want to offer up to this? And so she and I went through just the stuff. We weren't even home. So we just went through the pictures that were on my phone. And these are wow. these two watercolors that she had done for her art class. One of them is actually a watercolor of toddler her that she did from a photograph of herself. And so, yeah, so the small child on the left, that is actually her. (laughs) And another thing that I didn't tweet about is that the name of the gallery is in honor of my grandmother, Shirley Gallery. And that that was my grandma, Shirley, who, um, who died while we were working on Percy and she was a psychoanalyst and probably the biggest influence in my life and worldview. And, and she used to love, she not a television watcher. And she actually thought I, back when I was podcasting, she thought I was working on television then. But so when I got the job, she was like, but you've been working on television this whole time. (laughs) But one of my favorite things to do was to sit and talk like she and I would basically psychoanalyze characters. This was more for the old man than for Percy, but we did it. (laughs) And so it was like, she kind of had a relationship with all this stuff. So I just felt it it was just a neat opportunity to honor the generation yeah. below me and two generations above me at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was just because he texted me. It was like, do you have some paintings? We need some. <laughs> <laughs> That's so special. That's like the perfect bow of like, well, you're just speaking about collaboration and like the beauty of so many different people mm-hmm. working on this together to make it happen. And it's so personal for everyone. Like that's, you know, it's yeah. like everyone has relationships and that's like, I don't know. That's a neat part of all of it too, is like the, a show like this is built out of people who just like each other a lot and, and like what the other people do. It's like the most unbelievable feeling to reconcile that there's all of these people with all of these jobs from writer to lizard wrangler who are working together to tell this story that like we care about so much. Mm-hmm. It's absurd. I can't imagine how Rick and Becky have felt in the past couple years and like in the last month, but it is like the most joyous and like surprising and incredible, uplifting, vindicating feeling that there are so many Wonderful. people working together for this. That's all we hope for, honestly. It's just like yeah. if it's an honor to to yeah. be able to, you know, obviously to work with Rick and Becky is a huge honor. And to be able to 
be a small part of translating this story that means so much to so many people, hopefully in mm -hmm. a way that also feels meaningful to them. It's just, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, as someone who, you know, who came out of the a world that, you know, of fandom, it's just, yeah. for me, mm -hmm. I, but I think I can speak for everyone. It's just, it's such a wonderful opportunity and gift to be able to do this. Listeners, whether you are folding laundry or cleaning your house or driving right now, I want you to join us in a rousing round of thank you, Daphne. Thank you, Daphne, for not only being on Seaweed Brain today, but also helping to write our favorite story of all time and bring it to the masses with such care and specificity and love and thought. Mm -hmm. And we can't wait to have you back <laughs> in like three weeks or four weeks um, to talk about oh the rest God. of the season. Wow. <laughs> four weeks this all goes so fast it's like you work you work for years on something and it's just like oh in four weeks it's done <laughs> and then everyone's Wild. like season two season two season two uh, <laughs> thank you so much daphne we really appreciate you spending you. your evening with us wait can i can i do how you know what i'm obligated to do at the end of this Please. podcast yes uh i really think that everyone listening should also watch black Souls. <laughs> yeah <laughs> You can stream Daphne's podcast wherever podcasts are heard. Supposedly, Black Sails should be on Netflix any minute now. Uh, let's hope. Let's hope. If not, you can join me in creating a free trial for a Stars add-on to your Prime Video account, and I'll be there <laughs> listening to Black Sails, especially when Pussy ends. Oh my god! In like February, March, that's going to be my little dessert. <laughs> yeah, my little withdrawal treat. Tell your friend who was like, I want more Jessica Parker Kennedy. There's just a whole four seasons of her. <laughs> <laughs> We're also going to link to Daphne's jewelry in our show notes today. Support oh every goodness. single one of her careers, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> watch Percy Jackson. Do you have anything else you'd like to promote? The old man? Does your daughter man? maybe have like an art Instagram account? Yeah. Can we buy your daughter's art online? <laughs> oh, wait, she did. It's funny. I don't think it's on my website. She actually did do um, a series of jewelry of mythological creatures. Like she oh. drew them and then I and then I translated them into jewelry. And the funny thing is that it's a, a dragon, a phoenix, a unicorn, and a narwhal because she was making fun <laughs> of her mom who thought mm. narwhals aren't real. Ah! <laughs> That's beautiful. May we all live in, in mythical um, ethereal bliss. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much, Daphne. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll see you in, in a few weeks. Yeah. Wow. Wild. <laughs> All right. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. <laughs>